Welcome to the official tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here with my friend, my brother, one of the greatest coaches in the game, been around five decades, coached multiple Hall of Famers, multiple teams to World Team Tennis Championships. He has watched the game evolve and change 10 different times, uh, but he has stayed the same. His approach to the game is one I admire uh, and one that I lean on when I'm across the world needing somebody to talk to. We are here with Craig Carton. Craig, welcome. Thank you, Kamal. Good to see you, buddy. So you're one of the few, probably the only person still coaching that can say, I coached Martina Navratilova with Billie Jean King. I mean, first of all, the coach one of the game's greatest. Tell me about that. Well, it was a situation where I had practiced with Martina years before when I was um, before college, during college, we, she came back to Dallas. We had a relationship of, you know, mutual respect of playing together and just enjoying the competition as a hitting partner. And um, as time went on, I retired from playing 1987-ish and she was being coached by Tim Gullickson and we were practicing together um, and she just approached me out of the blue and just said, I want you to travel with me and coach me. But the label was a little different. It was like, she's like, I don't need a coach now. I just want someone to travel. <laughs> right. And, yeah. And I said, well, I'm not going to retire. I'm not going to give up my job unless I'm the coach. And She's probably thinking, oh, yeah, well, whatever. I'll give you whatever title you want, but I want you to travel with me, hit with me, and continue to have this, you know, chemistry where you push me. And um, I was clearly over my head, and she was number two in the world at the time. Monica knocking, Jennifer knocking at the door, Steffi kicking her butt. And, um, yeah, I mean, she suffered some losses after winning a a bunch of tournaments, which was expected. And I remember running into Billie Jean and we had a conversation and I did not know, but she had reached out to Billie, you know, wanted her to help her and said, yeah, I'm gonna get rid of Craig, but you know, I want you to help. Well, how's it with Craig? She's like, great, but you know, she's like, I'll help you, but you can't get rid of Craig. You know, he, he's been, it's not his fault, right? <laughs> And so I immediately went into mentor mode with Billie Jean, her helping me help Martina because she wasn't going to be there week in and week out. Right. And um, we actually formed a great relationship and I'm forever grateful to Billie Jean King, but I learned so much about the game and Martina opened up as the champion she is and I learned so much from her. And that experience is, I'll, I'll, I mean, I will never forget. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was first introduced to you, everybody was like, oh, you got to know Craig. He's been out here longer than you've been alive. So you've been coaching 
for 50 years. And in that well, time, no, 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 I'm 60, on so, but on 20, I mean, 26 years old, I, I really started, but it's been over five decades, I guess. Yeah. That's oh, over crazy. five different decades. Yeah. 80s, 90s. But in that time, you coached Lindsey Davenport, I, Mary Pierce, twice, Zena, yeah. Xavier Molise, Coco Vandeway, Alexandra Stevenson, been a USTA na national coach. Let's go back to Mary Pierce because I'm now back coaching Sloan. Everyone's like, oh, you're back again for the third time. Right, you're right. You, you coach Mary Pierce twice. And I try to help everybody understand when you coach somebody to a Grand Slam title, they never- Well, I coached Xavier twice, Mary twice, Coco twice. So, <laughs> you know, yes, it, you know, it, it's different. It's Come like, back. Yeah, you get, but the relationship is so close that you, you, you may like sever and break up, but it's always kind of like never on a bad note. It's just, hey, I need to hear something different or priority shift, whether it be family, have a baby, whatever it is, right? But it's never as antagonistic as the media would make it seem or others want to assume it is. And that's why I would try to tell people, hey, you call somebody to a grand slam, the relationship is permanent. Tell me about why and how some of the relationships ended and then started again. Well, I think uh, I'll start with, well, obviously Mar Martina retired. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Mary Pierce was at a point in my life where I was trying to settle down and not travel as much. So I took a job with the USTA and Mary was actually on a high, like top 10. We had a great year together and it was a personal choice for me not to travel as much. So that's when I took the job of the USTA. That was 1998, 97. And my relationship with the USTA ended Actually, during that time, Alexandra Stevenson came up and she was coached by Ray Ruffles, who had some health issues at the time. So I took over that role looking after her and she made Sammy's in Wimbledon, wanted me to travel and coach her full time. I did. I chose not to do that and uh, stayed with the USTA. Then Mary was on a comeback trail and asked me to help her again. And um, she had a, a good few weeks and then tore her meniscus, tore her, her, her knee. And that was the last match she ever played professionally. And I believe it was in Vienna, Austria. But her trust in me goes beyond tennis. I mean, we kept in touch and she's advised me on some of my future relationships, players I've coached and uh, been a, a mentor in that regard. I've coached a few players that she's worked with and we've kept in touch. So um, Xavier Melisse, the same thing happened. 2002, he made the semis, he was 19 years old. Uh, I helped him for a year and a half, roughly. And then he came to me 
towards the end of his career, wanted me to help him. And so we agreed to like a six month deal. But the, 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 the big thing come out is a trust, you know, and they don't want to go through grooming another coach or they know what they need. And they trust that you know what they need better than anybody else that they're going to hire and have to train and go through that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it works both ways, but uh, you're basically family without being called family. I agree. Right. And you had the privilege of coaching Lindsey Davenport, too, one of the biggest hitters in the history of the game. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, Lindsey was only 18, 19, and seven in the world. You know, I mean, she just rose right up there. It, it was a challenge for her and me because, you know, she's, I was recommended her to her. I was basically forced upon her really without <laughs> her knowing me. And we had to get to know each other. And, uh, you know, there were some learning curves for both of us. But she came to Dallas, trained with me, and we had a great time. There was good chemistry there, had a great run. You know, it was time for her to move on. And um, that, you know, it was a good relationship. I, I learned quite a bit from Lindsay in her game style that how she trusted what, what she does well and just to go with that bigger picture. And I consulted with uh, Robert Van Hoff, a longtime coach, quite a bit. And, um, you know, Lindsay doesn't need a whole lot of, like, really coaching. It's just support direction, a few pointers. I mean, she has the skills. You know, she always had. And a great competitor. You know, just her knowledge of the court and how she used her game really helped me as a coach realize strengths and weaknesses of players with her, with her game style. Now you've obviously got a long list of players. And one of the things I think the challenge with starting with a new player is when you first, that first week on the court, yeah. knowing how much to say and when and when not to speak. Right. And I always say yeah. like with a young kid, you talk once every three strokes. With a decent junior, you probably talk once every five strokes. With a pro, you're probably talking once every seven to nine strokes. Some, you talk once every 10 minutes, right? How did you, how did you navigate that on, you know, starting so many new relationships and sort of feeling out when to, you know, when to coach, when to shut up, when to let them figure it out, trying not to overcoach, Try not to annoy him, right? Because that's part of it is like, look, I just want to hire somebody that can get me organized and not annoy the hell out of me, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, basically, okay, they've hired you. Your presence is there. So your understanding of what their expectations are is zero. <laughs> you don't really know. So like for me, it's just a, you know, hit or miss you talk a little bit, see how that goes, or you don't say anything, see how that goes. And, you know, uh, from experience, I can just tell you different situations of, yes, I've 
talk too much or yes, I haven't said enough. And that goes on the whole career because you're always doing a dance. You're always trying to figure out because you're, you're, you're on their side, you're playing every point. So you, you want to be in there, but yet you don't want to overcoach and you don't want to not say something that needs to be said, especially in practice. you got to point out that's where you need to be a little tougher. It's just, you know, make sure you're crossing the T's, dotting the I's. Don't let stuff go unsaid in practice for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, matches are a little different because they're emotional. You know, there's only so much coaching you can do, at least on the WTA side, you know, the ATP side for sure. But it all goes on. I've learned that you get the better results with the less that you say and how you say it. You know, there's there has to be no judgment in, in your critique of what goes on and just a suggestion. But yet there's also kind of, okay, this is really important, so you need to do this, you know, or this requires a discussion. What do you, how do you feel in this situation of what your choice is versus what I think is the right way and what the reality and what the statistics and what the numbers say, you know, because we're supposed to know all that stuff, by the way. We're we're supposed to be the answer, all right? (laughs) And, you know, when, when you're in the, on the hot seat and, and everything's going great or bad, they look over at you and you're it, you know, so. I always find it to be, my challenge is match day. It is in the warm up, observing how they are, right? And yeah. I would say the matches that we lost, that I'm sitting there in the middle of the match regretting are the matches where the warm-up wasn't going great, mm-hmm. maybe in a little bit of a mood, and I didn't, I call it poke the bear, right? Where it's kind of like, <laughs> like, eh, they'll work it out. We got about three hours till match time. They'll be fine. They'll work it out, right? And then you get there and you down all three and you like, oh shit, they didn't work it out, mm-hmm. right? So I would say, yeah. You know, in my career, I can name probably five or six matches where I said, I, I, I definitely should have poked the bear, right? And then the match really? day two, challenge number two is after the match, knowing when to poke the bear, because the bear has to be poked after the match. Is it oh, yeah. while they're on the bike? Is it let them have a couple hours to themselves and then wait till dinner, right? And then mm-hmm. do you go right at them or do you say, so what do you think about the match? You know what I mean? That That's sort of you know, my dance. Yeah, that's the dance we have to do and and know when to say things. And I haven't really like a a pre-match warm-up. I can't say through my experience with any, that there was any magical thing said or not said during a pre-match warm-up, okay? It's what it is. It is getting a sweat, making sure you're okay. The basic thing is what's not said, okay? And that's overthinking a serve, overthinking a certain shot, pointing attention to something that they're not finishing because that will become a huge thing during the match. You just don't want to pay attention to something that's not that big a deal. 
maybe it could be a big deal, but if they don't think it is in the warmup, then it won't be in a match. You see? Yeah. And I think more importantly, it's how you interact after the match with the time you take between let's, let's address this, you know, giving the player an opportunity to, you know, uh, have some space and, and think about things or, you know, right after the match to walk with them, let them talk first. Always. I tell coaches, let your player talk first because that's where you get the information and what they're feeling on the court. You know, you're not the one playing the match. Although we play every point, we're not the ones feeling what they feel. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a lot of feedback mm -hmm. and it can change your critique and how you handle telling them the reality of what actually happened and how they can improve. Well, let me ask you this then, because everybody's different. I've, I've had times where after the match, wouldn't say a word, won't even go to yeah. dinner together, see you yeah. the next day on the way to the airplane, right? After a loss. Yeah. Who on your player roster was, gave you the most sort of anxiety after a loss where you're like, oh, do I say? Do I say anything? Let me just get on the bus and go. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here, but uh, there's been a few heated conversations that happened right after. And maybe it could have been the coach who should have taken a, a pass at like really addressing that. <laughs> because, you know, as I said, we play every point and sometimes you, even though I know I'm right, and you need to say something, it's it's basically, you gotta wait. You, you gotta wait. Martina basically, she wanted to talk right away. That was one of the few players that she just wanted to vent and then want, wanted my opinion. Um, Mary, not so much. Xavier, oh my, you know, like let's not talk for a couple of days and have, have dinner and then maybe discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Bogey, Alex Bogomolo, uh always talk right away. Some players you know you need to have that conversation, but you have to wait for the right moment, you know. And for them to be calm, you to be calm, and say the right thing, you know. So what do you think so, about on-court coaching? Because when you started, or you've been coaching over there five wasn't. Days, Right. Yeah. No, there and, wasn't any on court coaching. Right. And I mean, obviously, it was always signaling, coaching, there, gesturing, yeah, I mean, Patrick Montague said it best. He just said, you know, there's always coaching. Yeah, it happens. But it's it happens more. We're not cheating, but the player knows you as a person. We're communicating without saying anything, you know. So on court coaching can be beneficial I think done the right way of course I think it's more of a marketing gimmick the way it's been approached is they're trying to showcase it and it's kind of backfired a little bit because you're putting two people in a personal relationship that can be explosive and you're trying to market something statistics or you know you get your notebook out and all that I throw that out the window just that we do that before okay 
we look maybe look at our phone now, the technology, and look at some numbers, but we're not going to be throwing things out there and curve like necessary curveballs to get the player thinking too much. I think the on-court coaching is good in a way that the the fans see the relationship of where it can be helpful, you know, but it can also backfire and and see a you know. Uh, a blame game or you know an admonishment that doesn't need to be publicly aired right well, now they have the coaching from the sideline i remember just a couple of weeks ago i was you know obviously during the match sloan was playing and everybody was like yeah can see you coaching i'm like it's allowed right they're on the yes. side of the court you're not interrupting the floor of the match you right. can now right. speak and like people don't know that now but i think it gives so much more freedom for it to be more natural uh um, yes and I think that, you know, we've got to sort of catch up to the other sports and, you know, sort of. Have to I, I agree with you. You know, I, because I was from a different decade of, you know, we're because tennis for me was taught so much of, you know, once you do your work and you're on the court. And so it, there's still an innate thing in me of I'm always kind of like whispering or is this all right? You know, I'm, I'm right. saying it kind of, no, it's okay. Like just yell it, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and I've had players say to me, look, I'll get the coaching violation. If you say something good, I, I'm fine with that. <laughs> but I've also had players that I've said something and they wanted it said, and then there's a fine there, but I'm the guy who gets like looked at as I'm cheating, you know? It's coming out to check. That fine yeah, coming yeah, out to exactly. check. Exactly. <laughs> I always yeah, say my check is big enough names, to take that There's a shock, shock harp here in there. That, yeah. I always say my, my, my check isn't big enough to take that fine. You got to take that fine. Well, it would have been had she not fired me right before she made top 10. <laughs> that was timely. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't say that out loud, did I? Oh, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> anyway, she was a challenge. She was such a great fighter. And uh, for... Her weapons that she had, I mean, making 11 in the world is a great achievement for her. So now. And the stuff we went through, actually, as an Israeli player going to Dubai, I, I, that was something I've never experienced. I'm half Jewish and like I understand the racism with the Arabs, but we got there, had 13 bodyguards. We're not allowed to associate with the players, had our own hotel, guards, everything. I mean, it was something I've never experienced. Mm. So you talk about, you know, sort of just your travels and racism in different environments. What has been your most memorable tournament you've been to? Not necessarily venue related or city related, but just circumstance besides that one. <laughs> memorable tournaments there there's been a few especially with martina i mean one of them was in rome playing late at night she lost in singles had to play doubles she was playing with mary joe they were playing capriati and Celis, the second night match in rome so we're talking past midnight the lights go out. <laughs> I'm talking all the lights went out. And I think we got back at like four o'clock in the morning, you know, and 
she had made the final and they they lost to Cap they lost to Capriani and Sellers and both of them were staying back on their serve. Never seen anything like it and won. <laughs> and um, Martina looks over to me, we're having late night room service or something like, oh, isn't this a glamorous life, you know? <laughs> it was anything but. Um, I remember Martina playing in France, indoor tournament, she's seated two, three, four, I can't remember. We get to the court. You know, those days you get 32 draw, she has a bye, so she plays Wednesday. Monica's on the other half. We hit maybe 10 minutes on the court and it's slow. The court is slow. And so she immediately starts crying saying, I've got no chance to win here. Zero. <laughs> Gets to the final and I provided one of my best game plans ever of how to beat Monica. She beats Monica, and I thought, God, this is awesome. Great. You know, in the celebration, she wins a car, and she gives a speech, and it was to dedicate to someone who was watching that week, and, <laughs> and nothing said about me. <laughs> I was like, I just thought that was hilarious. That's great. Okay. <laughs> Well, well, good. You, good for you. At least decades. you won the match. Coach number five decades. You 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 probably had a few of those where they they held the trophy. Yeah, there were there the there thing. were a few. Of those. <laughs> uh, oh man! So I I remember Xavier Xavier won my the memorable match when he was playing now Bandian up two sets to one in the semis, four one, and. God, it wasn't against Nalbandian, was it? Yeah, I think it was Nalbandian, court one. And he had this uh, AFib that he didn't, it wasn't diagnosed. So when he got kind of emotional and nervous, his heart would race. And it happened during, I don't know, second set, third set. And he had to be taken off the court. <laughs> the... Uh, all England club, the first thing that they did was they made him, they wanted him to sign agreement in order to let him go back on the court and hold them not liable if he had a heart attack or something. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, uh-uh, I'm going back, I'm gonna play and like, that actually gave him fire to go back and play. But I've never seen anything like that, that he had to leave the court, get evaluated, and they wanted a signed agreement for him to go back on the court. He ended up losing, but played a great match. Now, Bandian, you know, history, made the final. It was Leighton Hewitt's first Wimbledon title. But Xavier could have won that tournament, I promise you. He, he was legit, like, playing best of all those guys. So you, one of the people I'm looking at, you're like probably my favorite person to see after a match. Because you, you have this look, and it's words you say, I know, you don't even have to say anything. I get it. Yeah. I know how you feel. This is yes. a hard job, right? And I've only been doing it eight years. Yeah. 
You've been doing it way longer. How and why do you keep doing it? Because now you're working with Christina McHale, who's a great yes. talent, a great American talent. Just a great girl. Yeah. Great person. Got easy to be fights. around, easy to travel with. Yes. Um, so how what keeps you out here, right? Because some of the stops, especially when you take on a young player, right, who's not maybe not automatically in all the premier fives, maybe not automatically in the slam. You know, what keeps you out on tour doing this versus at the country? Coaching, club? just the challenge, like figuring out the pieces and, and helping the, the, that player win a match that day that they didn't think that they belong, you know, and the training, watching them get better than they thought they could be, but also addicted to the winning of, you know, the success and watching, watching the player just achieve something, you know, and as much as I hated the anxiety of the competition, but I love it too. The adrenaline, the, I wish I was out there, you know, I love competing. I love that. And, you know, you got some skin in the game, right? Cause you care. Right. And obviously I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't care and mm -hmm. definitely not doing it just to take the check, but mm -hmm. you're invested emotionally and players know that mm -hmm. they just do. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, a, for me, it's like a puzzle come out of like, what's going to do it for this player? How can I help them? Cause I want to leave this situation knowing that I made them a better player. Mm -hmm. And also I'm learning from them to be a better coach as well. Well, you know, it's funny. You say I'm going to lead the situation. I think one of the things Willis Thomas said to me when I first started, he said, hey, young fella, you're not a real coach until you get fired, right? <laughs> and so yeah. I think that listening to you talk about, you know, just the goal of helping the player improve, yeah. knowing eventually it will end, helps the process right? Just sort of not be so tenuous, right? Because you understand you have a job. It's not forever, right? Right. You've got to leave this situation better than Positive. when you were Yeah. Involved. On both sides of the coin. Both sides. I think too many players don't understand that. Yeah. And I think sometimes they choose coaches because they want the quick fix or, or they choose coaches because that's what's going to be comfortable for them and not make the right choice. But it is, there's a start and an ending, but you're going to have a relationship anyway, I would hope further, you know, than tennis just in general. And you do go into the professional relationship knowing, Hey, this is your job. This is a goal. We're going to get there. And it's a challenge for both of us. Right. But if it's not working, sometimes it's almost the job of the coach to confront. But the coach doesn't always do that. Job security, whatever. You know, but uh, if it's not working, I mean, it, it, it's not healthy for either person to stay in that. Mm -hmm. So you were you were here back in the day when it was the Virginia Slims tour. Yes. And. Obviously, there's a lot less tournaments, especially on the WTA side, 
in America, in the States. Uh, tournaments have come on and off the calendar one year, two years, then they're gone. What do you right. think we need to do? Because ultimately, you know, even when I, I work with kids every day, right? And you're selling them, right. on, whether it be get a college scholarship or if you're a woman, you make a great living, right? Or the best living in all of female sports playing tennis, right? Nine out of the top 10 highest paid female athletes play tennis. So you're selling this sport to these young kids, but then tournaments are not consistently staying in the States, right? And you've been around and seen the tour evolve. What do you think we have to do to sort of get, get and keep more tournaments in the States so that we can continue to like sell a realistic dream to the next group of youngsters? Well, first of all, I think USTA needs to do more with investing in tournaments in our own country and put money into smaller events so that there's more job opportunities, so that there's more competitive opportunities and not make the nationals or sectional tournaments so prohibitive to competing. Most of these kids come out, don't play sets. They train, they don't compete. I don't know what the answer is, but we have to find a way to make it more fun and more attractive for players in the U.S. to compete against each other, to play more tournaments, whether it's club events, UTR, inter, like inner club events, you know, clubs against other clubs, academies against other academies. We got to make it more fun for these kids to compete against each other. Mm -hmm. and not just train. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that at a junior level, we, 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 we create a lot of professional practice players. Right? Yes. And when you, right. even when the, these players listen to the commentators, we talk about the word compete. I mean, even at this level in the coaching, you probably often say, listen, just compete, right? Or this player competes well, right? And it's most often said about players from overseas, right, who may have come from challenging sort of situations and tennis was their way out. They just compete. And I agree that, you know, a lot of times I hear, even from current coaches on tour, the post-match sort of like the, the speech after a loss is uh, you did some good things, right? But at the end of the day, you didn't win, right? And I think that the goal when you step on the court is not to play well. Like the goal is to win the match, right? At, at the professional level, <laughs> You got to win the match. You just have to be better than the other person that day for that hour and a half. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I don't care how you get there. But getting there and winning is the most important thing when you want to play professional tennis. Yes. Okay? Yes. Bottom line. It's <laughs> just you got to get it done. Right? I mean, watching Jensen Brooksby – how he gets it done, um, watching Coco golf, how she gets it done. It's just amazing to see the difference in what they do point by point of how they compete, mm -hmm. right? And the arguments, well, well how'd they get that way? I think most of it is just inherent with their personality. I mean, they just compete well, but they've made a decision 
right? Mm -hmm. They've made a decision to when they play a match, a tennis match, they want to win. They don't just want to play well. Right. They actually want to win. Right. You know, they don't want to come off and go, yeah, well, I, I you know, hit all these forehand winners. Or I did some, I did some I, good I, things. I well. Hey, I won. They want to come off. Maybe they didn't play well. So they're like, yeah, I played like crap, but hey, I still won. Right. Okay. Right. I, I, I agree. I think we, we we fall back on you did some good things. You made yeah. some progress. Um, but at the end of the day, the job is to try to win the match. You exactly. know, if you got to slice your way to the finish line, slice your way to the finish line. You gotta, <laughs> yeah. if you got to moon ball the way. Boom, Let's just get to the finish line, though. Let's let's win, right? Yes. You know, no consolation prizes. Um, well, man, I wanted to thank you for coming on. You're one of the guys I respect. You know, when I see you in the elevator, I'm always like, "Hey, brother, let's go to church." You know, we, you know, yeah. you, you got to have somebody yes. on tour, week in, week out, that keeps you sane. You can confide in, and you know they understand where you are even without you saying it so you know you're that dude for me and i always appreciate you so i wanted to just man thank you for taking your time tonight uh to spend this time with us and um you know for those who are listening craig Carden is like a legend in the game right literally been coaching over five decades from team tennis to, to hall of famers to juniors to club tennis right at the country club i mean he knows yes. the game in and out and is a good person. So we want to thank Craig for, for coming on, brother, and I will see you soon. Thank you, Kamal. Always a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to seeing you soon. All right, brother. Thank you. This has been the Tennis.com podcast with our this week's guest, Craig Carden, and we will see you next week. <laughs>